This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Tracy Holmes. I'm from the ABC. I would like to first off uh, acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Uh, a couple of housekeeping matters to start with. Please put your phones on silent. That doesn't mean we don't want you to use them, because of course we do. Feel free to uh, tweet if you hear anything interesting or anything you'd like to share with the, the greater world public. The hashtag is FODI. Uh, the session is being recorded, uh, including audience questions, which will come in the last 20 minutes of the hour. And there are microphones that are set up um, at either side of the stage which is where you'll be able to ask your questions from. So at that time, if you do have a question, please feel free to come forward uh, either side. Now, over the next hour, our panel is going to discuss um, the very dangerous idea to legalise drugs in sport. I don't want anybody to be horrified by that concept. What is to follow, hopefully, is a, a full and frank discussion about the pros and cons as well as making some distinctions between uh, the many facts and fantasies that occupy this space. And I'm sure you'll agree it's become a really hot-button topic. We heard quite a few instances um, of this being raised uh, in Rio at the recent Olympic Games. Um, and it's also a really polarising concept. And I think that comes down to the way that uh, the whole anti-doping process is both governed and talked about in the media. So to introduce the panel, joining us today, four very different people with very different areas of expertise. And um, first of all, Lisa Forrest, Olympian, broadcaster and author. Yes, clap Lisa. <laughs> Lisa is also founder of Evermind, which is uh, a mindful-based coaching practice specialising in performance, resilience and leadership. Next to me is Stephen Dank, who's worked as a sports scientist with football clubs in both the National Rugby League and Australian Rules, as I'm sure you all know. He is known for unorthodox treatment and knows full well what happens when you fall foul of the anti-doping system. Stephen Dank. On my left, Dr Jason Mazanov is a senior lecturer with the School of Business at the University of New South Wales, Canberra um, uh, section. Dr Mazanov has been actively researching the policy and management of drugs in sport for over a decade, and he's the author of the upcoming book, Managing Drugs in Sport. If only it could have been out this weekend, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> Jason Mazanov. <laughs> And of course, Richard Ings, whenever this topic is brought up, it's very hard to go past Richard uh, for <laughs> a quote or some analysis. We've seen him in newspapers, on TV, and he famously coined the phrase, the blackest day in Australian sport, which I don't think you will ever live down. Richard Ings. <laughs> And I should just add, of course, we know that Richard is the go-to person because he is a former CEO of ASADA, the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority. And he was also instrumental with, uh, as head of the ATP, the Tennis World Tour Anti-Doping Program. Now, I'm going to start with each of our panellists just to get a bit of a snapshot about where they sit on this topic, legalising drugs in sport, and to give us an idea of why they think 
the way they think about this topic. Lisa. Um, well, I'm anti-legalising drugs in sport um, for the very good reason... For the, for, the, for the reason that I don't think that most people who take drugs have a choice. And did you want to expand on that a bit more? Well, like, I mean, I, I mean obviously own, I swam against the East Germans. Exactly. Um, and those girls didn't have a choice. Um, although um, Raylene Boyle, for instance, would say that the older, older women did. Renata Stecker did. Um, she won the 100 and 200 in Munich. And Raylene came second. Um, and she said that, you know, her husband... She was trained by her husband, so she knew. But the girls I swam against were teenagers. They were given a blue pill and they were told that... Um, you know, they were told that it was a vitamin. And then, of course, they did horrible things. They were guinea pigs back then. That was my understanding of it. Um, but I just don't think that anyone has a choice when it comes down to it. I think that they're told that they can't win without it, that everybody else is on it, um, you know, a variety of reasons. And, and so I'm, I'm against, I'm against okay. it. Stephen? Well, obviously, I'm for it. Um, <laughs> but let me just say this. Let me just say this. Um, in saying that, in no way, shape, or form do I believe it should be a drugathon. And should we legalise drugs in sport? You know, if 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 WADA and all the governing bodies of all the sports come to me tomorrow and said, "You have a magic wand, and tomorrow it's up to you. If you want it, drugs will be legalised in sport." Obviously, I would take the yes option. But let me just say this: the testing, the management, um, the use of the various medications. Uh, who is registered to give those medications would be far, far more robust than the situation we have in, um, and we've had for the last uh, umpteen years, which I think it sometimes has been laughable, um, sometimes amateurish, um, and I would certainly say that we would need to bring that up quite considerably before I would allow that yes to happen. I don't quite agree, and let me say this, I respect that Lisa got to an Olympic Games, and I think you've got to respect anyone that got there. I think the debate about having the choice or not, I think that probably requires another platform and another whole afternoon. But I will say one thing, I don't think the East German success during 68 to 88 was based simply on the fact that they had a program full of Geranibol. I agree. You know, they, they knew how to coach, yeah. they knew how to periodise, they knew how to sleep, they knew how to understand circadian rhythms of training, and I think to anyone to say that the whole success of East Germany was based purely on a drug program, I think is very, very naive. But I will just say this one thing again. I don't believe if I had the opportunity to take the yes option, I would allow it to be a drugathon, and the testing, the accreditation, the robustness of the management, and the data kept in relation to this sort of program would be far, far more robust than, you know, what we see today, when of course it's the no option. Okay, Jason. Uh, my position on this is that we absolutely must have drug control in sports. So I'm in, in furious agreement with Stephen on this point. What I disagree with is after 10 years working in this space, the anti-doping policy, uh, from my point of view, can never work. And we need to find a framework which will effectively manage drugs in sport as opposed to what we, we currently have. And this is based on a social science point of view. All the evidence that we see now in the social science all points pretty much the same direction, that the anti-doping policy itself is fundamentally flawed. What this means is we need to reinvent, we need to find another way of doing it, and at the moment the anti-doping policy is actually preventing us from exploring those options. So while I would say that yes, we do need to find a new way of understanding the role of drugs in sport, 
Clearly, some drugs will need to stay well and truly uh, out of the, the sports pantheon, but I think we should have a much more liberal view about which drugs we include uh, in sport as legal substances. Richard Ings. <laughs> well, I mean, in life we have rules. In sport we have rules. But one of the problems in sport at the moment is that these rules are very confusing. And as a result, the number of people involved in using performance-enhancing drugs has really devalued our belief in the entire system. So I'm not a supporter, and I don't think there's really anyone who is a supporter of completely deregulating and having open slather use of performance-enhancing drugs in sport, because that would apply at the elite level, but it also filters down through the amateur level and the junior level as well. But what we do need to do, and I think all of us on the panel agree, is that the current anti-doping system is really letting athletes down, it's letting administrators down, it's letting the fans down, and it needs to do a much better job to regain and rebuild our confidence that we really can have some semblance of clean sport. All right. Let's look at a couple of basics, just to sort of um, set the picture, because I don't know how many people are ever fully aware of the, the nuts and bolts of drug testing as it exists at the moment. Lisa, can you explain a simple drug test, a urine sample, and, and this is happening for 12, 13-year-olds who are participating in sport. So let's say there's a 13-year-old swimmer who's competing at some sort of a state championship, age championship in Canberra, and <coughs> Asada turns up. What happens? Well, Trace, I don't know. It's been such a long time since I swam. I was tested once, and that was after I slipped at the two and a backstroke <laughs> final at the, at the Moscow Olympics. I'm like, why are you testing me? I wasn't. Yeah, testing for Mogadon. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, as far as I know, it's, a, it's a, essentially you've got to go in and uh, you've got to drink a lot of water and hope that you can, you know, go to the toilet in a bottle, pee in a bottle um, after the game. I mean, from now, from what I see, you, there are mirrors around, there are all sorts of things um, when it comes to trying to you know, stop someone from switching a sample and stuff like that. But as far as I know, it's peeing in a bottle, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and, and what happens is you're sent in with two people um, and you're asked to strip from the waist down. Uh, it can be quite confronting. That didn't the happen first in my day. <laughs> and second and third time that it happens, um, to the point where some young people are actually pulling out of sport because they can't stand... Uh, the process. I don't know if you can expand on that any further, Richard, about what, what happens, how close they have to be to see what's going on. Yeah, look, it's an incredibly invasive process. Um, you think about it from a workplace perspective. Imagine you're at work mm -hmm. and your employer wants to know where you are 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to be able to provide a urine sample and a blood sample on demand anytime, anywhere that you are. That's what athletes are subjected to. There Athletes have to fill in a, a book with WADA, the World Anti-Doping uh, Authority Agency, and they have to let drug testers know where they are 365 days a year so that they can turn up unannounced at any time. That's right, and this applies even to junior athletes as well, and it's a, it's a very confronting situation where the athlete needs to disrobe from neck to knee and, and pass the, the sample in full plain view of an anti-doping uh, chaperone. Um, it's a very confronting situation for an athlete to be involved in and one that fortunately I've never had to do, but even demanding it happen as an administrator, it's a very difficult thing. And Trace, can I just yeah. intervene? That's one of the issues, I mean, let's, before we get to the drug issues, um, I mean, I've got a real issue with that. And, you know, let's, and let's sort of also remove ourselves from the adult situation where you've got to derobe and, you know, face by 360 degree mirrors and that. 
I've got a real issue with kids, 18 years and younger. I mean, if I walked into a government agency tomorrow and say, I'm going to set up something, and part of that mechanism is I'm going to get kids to undress, I've got a real issue with that. Mm. So I now, I've got a real ideological issue with that. that. That's something which greatly concerns me. Now, the, I mean, this is, this is a party trick that I do when I, when I do these sorts of things. Just so you understand, guys, what happens with the drug test. Don't take your pants off. No, I'm not going to take my pants off this time. <laughs> not, not like that last time. So they are, they are naked from here to here, and they squat so that the, the drug control officer can have a, a full view of the urethra. Okay, the polite way of saying it is to see the sample leaving. Okay, now, I mean, I, I think about this. I've got a seven and a nine-year-old kid. Now I'm thinking, okay, everyone goes like, okay, this is anti-doping. So I mean, just think about this. Now, the research, there's a colleague of mine in Germany who's done a lot of research around pariuresis, about anxiety. You're so anxious you can't urinate. And there's stories about the doping control officer's head being about here. Okay? Now, add to this, the UK currently holds the record for the youngest athlete tested. Nine years old. Now, I keep asking this question, and it concerns me greatly as the father of a nine-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl. How does subjecting a nine-year-old child to that support and make the 100-metre final at the Olympics any better, any more integrity than it might have before? I just don't see the relationship between drug testing a nine-year-old with such an invasive procedure and stopping Justin Gatlin from running in the 100 metres final. I just don't see that correspondence. And that's one of the things that really makes me viscerally upset, as it does Stephen. And not only that, but I think um, a 12-year-old is, is the youngest that has actually tested positive for something, not deliberately ingesting anything, but these things can pop up from you know, different sources of meat. People think it's excuses that athletes give, but you can test positive to something without even knowing where it came from. And uh, he suffered a suspension. Yep. Um, there's also like 78-year-old men who take heart pills who have tested positive and been banned from riding with their local cycling club. Uh, that's the sort of the other end of, of the anti-doping policy as we know it. Coming back to some of the specifics, the World Anti-Doping Code, um, which national anti-doping agencies like ASADA are charged with enforcing, how difficult is it to follow? Is it, is it a situation where, I mean, this is the situation. Athletes have to take full responsibility for whatever pops up out of their testing. Can an athlete hop on, look at the code, and know for certain <coughs> this is okay, no. this is not okay? No. And look, you know, our case was a case in point. I won't comment too much because I've got all sorts of appeal processes and you know, court cases going on, on a lot of this. But, you know, in relation to what happened, you know, at one particular football club, you know, we spoke to Asada in 2.10. Rang Asada. I've got a witness who will, you know, he'll, he'll be in the witness box when we go to court on this. We rang Asada and said, this is what we'd like to do, A, B, C, D and E, because we consider that these... Uh, particular medication stroke substances, and there's a clear difference between the classification of a medication and a substance. Um, you know, these are, we believe, of a certain class. And uh, the person on the other end of the phone said, well, you know, we agree with you. Okay? And f three years later, all hell breaks loose you know, because certain substances that we use were then deemed to be 
obviously banned. Now, I'll tell you what's very, very interesting. If you have a look at the WADA code for 2.10 and 2.11, under no way, shape or form did the classification of those substances nor the substances <coughs> were mentioned. Interesting enough, if you look at the 2.16 code, specifically what I put to Asada at the time, they now have their own classification and the substances are actually listed as part of that classification. And they certainly weren't determined so back in 2.10 to 11. The other issue that I've got, um, and I think the pharmacokinetic understanding of a lot of these substances and drugs, uh, I think the understanding by WADA you could put on the back of a pinhead in terms of their approach to a lot of these things. But, you know, they're asking athletes to try and make a self-determination about what a substance or where, what a substance becomes because suddenly they're banned on the back of metabolites. Not metabolites that are actually in the code, but metabolites that are a consequence of the metabolism you know, of these substances stroke drug. The point I'm trying to make is I think... Look, I understand that WADA try to instill a level playing field, and that takes a whole different forum to, to, to take discussion on. <laughs> the problem is they truly do not understand a lot about the biochemistry stroke pharmacology of these substances. I mean, I can pull out seven peer-reviewed papers, three of which are three of the top men in their field for growth hormone. Seven peer-reviewed papers which clearly state there is no performance-enhancing benefit from growth hormone. Yet it's banned. What I'm saying is it's a terribly difficult code to follow from an athlete's point of view. And I think the code itself is very, very poorly managed and administered and, and therefore written uh, by the World Anti-Doping Authority itself. Okay, we're going to open up the discussion about legalising doping in sport and pull in some of the elements you've all been speaking about. But I just want to bring up uh, one recent case that happened at the Rio Olympics and I think everyone in Australia was quite across it. Uh, when the Australian was sitting in a press conference room, Mac Horton, uh, with Sun Yang, the Chinese swimmer. How many people are familiar with... Yeah, okay. So, Mac uh, points out that Sun Yang is a drug cheat. He doesn't support drug cheats. He doesn't like drug cheating. So the story goes on. Just a bit of background on Sun Yang. He does have a heart condition. He is given medication for it. The medication he tested positive to was this medication, which he is allowed to take out of competition. He tested positive in competition because there is no uh, threshold limit to suggest that if you take something out of competition which is legal, it may still be in your system 10 days later when you're competing. So in fact, he hadn't taken it in competition, which is illegal, so the whole thing ends up becoming a technicality. Now, the panel, the anti-doping panel that heard his case agreed that there was no uh, attempt to, to actually cheat, uh, but they gave him a three-month ban anyway. They gave the doctor a one-year ban because he should have alerted the authorities beforehand. So all of this has been playing out in Sun Yang's life and in the Australian media, he's targeted as an absolute drug cheat and he now lives with that reputation for the rest of his life as he continues to take this medication for the condition that he does have. So there are so many anomalies in this, aren't there? 
So let's open it up now. Let's say we legalise doping in sport. What happens? What are your greatest concerns, Richard Ings, should that ta take place? <clears throat> well, it's a very long list. <laughs> if we were to legalise the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sport, it applies to all sport. It applies to all athletes. It applies to junior athletes. Because what we see happening at the elite level inevitably falls down, flows down to lower levels of sport. And we're seeing this um, at the moment. We're seeing high school athletes using you know, steroids and performance enhancing drugs. Imagine if it was allowed to happen. Richard, I'll just take care on that. What's the evidence about the penetration of steroids in high schools at the moment? Well, I haven't got the statistics at hand, but having worked at ASADA for a number of years and, and talking to other anti-doping agencies around the world, there are real concerns about the use of performance-enhancing drugs, potentially maybe not in places like Australia, though it does exist in high school sport here, but in other countries around the world. South, uh, South, South Africa is a case in point where they've got major problems in, uh, in high school sport in that regard. Let, let me throw you a, a nice little story from a colleague of mine in, in the US, Jules Wolfe. Um, they, they had a, 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 the biggest ever drug testing program in high school in, in Texas, uh, the state of Texas in high school football, which was abandoned after about, I think, 18 months to two years on the grounds that they did not find an epidemic of steroid use amongst their high school footballers. Now, while elite athletes might have the support networks to diffuse the tests, to, to, um, to hide from the tests, most high school kids don't. Now, there seems to be a moral panic. People come up and they say all the time, there's this great epidemic of, of performance-enhancing drug use, and they always pick anabolic steroids. Mm. My question always is, number one, the epidemiology is really bad in this area. Number two, how do we know it's actually getting worse? Is it any worse? So is this just a moral panic about trying to, for the anti-doping industry to try and get more money? Well, I think we're talking about a different question. I think we're talking about the, the premise of the discussion today is what would happen if we liberalised, if we legalised the use of performance-enhancing drugs. And, and my, my view is that it would naturally transfer down to other levels of sport in an unchecked and uncontrolled and ultimately very unhealthy way. I do wonder about that because I think about like Formula One racing, you know, we give drivers permission to go 350 mm. k's an hour. It doesn't mean we all go out on the road on a Sunday and go, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just not too sure where and why and how the World Anti-Doping Authority and sporting bodies have suddenly become the moral high ground of society. I haven't quite worked that one out yet. I mean, just as a little side event, we have this ridiculous situation now, which has arisen during the week, where the NRL is trying to tell players who and they can't, you know, can't talk to. I mean, I just don't understand where the moral high ground notion started to become, you know, part of the landscape for you know wider and sporting bodies. So, let's my view. I think we've just got to deal with the facts and what is actually happening. So let's take the concerns out of it. Okay, there's no use talking about concerns. Let's talk about what's actually happening. Now, I do agree with Richard in some way what I think would happen if it was just suddenly a drug-a-thon. And I sort of, uh, you know, earlier in this discussion, I said that if it was to happen, it would be managed to another level than what it is now, when, of course, it's, you know, not allowed. So there's a little bit there I agree with Richard on. And it's probably a good bit I agree with Richard on some things. I think the other thing, too, and I think the point that is sorely missed... Look, just to put it bluntly, there are some dickhead coaches and trainers out there. I think I've actually heard that label apply to you. Correct. <laughs> Correct. But I'm a smart dickhead. 
I am a dickhead that knows a little bit about drugs. But in saying that, in saying that, you know, we had a situation last year where a Russian track, sorry, a Russian field coach uh, copped a suspension, as did an athlete, for the use of ipamorelin for a knee injury. Now, you couldn't get a greater piece of dickhead advice than simply telling your athlete, go and take some ipamorelin for a few weeks and you'll successfully treat a knee injury. So, in putting this in place, you know, I would also make sure there is a very strong, robust education, as well as an accreditation process for people who could do these sort of things. And I think this is what's really sorely missed in this argument. And again, I probably agree with Richard on a couple of things here. It would filter in, it would filter down if it was unbridled, because every man and his dog would now think that they're capable of writing a chapter in Goodman and Goldman's textbook of pharmacological basis of therapeutics and have got absolutely no idea. And I think it's important to know that while these substances uh, will have a certain benefit and a therapeutic benefit, and I'm not talking about just the acute benefit of performance. I was never about imp uh, improving performance per se. I was all about treating tissue, tissue that was disrupted, uh, tissue that itself could not support for the further performance. I was all about recovery. I mean, you know, I'm not sure how many elite professional full-time athletes we have in the audience. We've certainly got Are one. Are there any? Can't no. see. <laughs> We've <laughs> certainly got one on the panel that was once. And I think Lisa could probably describe, she had a tough gig. I mean, she was an elite athlete in the day when there was no money for swimming. They got up at an absolutely ridiculous hour of the day to swim 30 or 40,000 times up and down a black line. And... I think Lisa would probably tell us how difficult the process was, not just from a performance point of view, simply from a recovery point of view. And as I said, she did it in a day before there was any payments or any government support. I mean, at the end of her six years of competitive swimming, I'm sure she was absolutely just physically exhausted. Let, let me come back, because I think we do need to have a bit of a debate about uh, recovery and performance enhancing, because they are two separate things which are not dealt with at the moment. But Lisa, when you look at elite sport today, your own sport of swimming, can you relate to anything that, that no. the swimmers go through? I, I think um, what was interesting when I commentated, I went to, Foxtel, I went to London for Foxtel, was that in doing the research for the, you know, those games, um, the Moscow Olympics sat exactly 30 years, or was it 30 years? But right in the middle, yeah. anyway, essentially in the middle of 1948 and 2012. And um, my, I realised that my experience was closer to 19, for the 1948 athletes than the 2012 in terms of the sports science um, and everything that's going on. Now, like this is make, I, I feel particularly amateur right now. I swam in an amateur time, but I always used to think that I was really a person who would always want to change because I swam at a time when we had a real difference. In the 70s, you guys aren't maybe old enough to remember the 70s, but, um, you know, the 70s were a time when, 1976, we did not win a gold medal in, in Montreal. Now, three-quarters of the swim team happened to swim personal best times. We were just, you know, three-quarters of a pool length behind the East Germans, for instance, in the 4 by 100 medley relay when the Australian girls actually broke the Australian record and the East Germans had won. So things were um, needed to change. And we were, you know, there was the miles in the bank of the Forbes Carlisle and then the Bob Trophine came along and sort of switched things around and, and made it shorter distance, much more intense. Um, and so I watched... As a 14-year-old, I first started swimming for Australia, so I watched on the pool deck on my first Australian team when we were in Honolulu, 
I'd been trained by the Trophine method back in my, with my home coach, dropped 25 seconds to get into the Australian team. Bob Trophine was on the pool deck, but he only worked with those particular people over there who believed in him and those coaches, while I was with a coach, not my own, but the Australian team coach, who was old school, <coughs> nine kilometres a session. So by the third week, I couldn't quite understand. Forbes Carlisle is on the pool deck as well. He knew I was using the Trophine methods. I'm over here with this particular guy. And by the third week, I was in hospital because I had these incredible headaches, or best you could call them, blacked out in the middle of training and was seeing a neurologist. Oh, I was just stretched, stress. So, so I, I totally, I, from that moment, I was like, I am never going to be an adult who doesn't change. <laughs> but what you guys are talking about, and, and this is, I mean, it does, it does upset me because ultimately I think choice is the big thing. And I think choice is the big issue. Would I really, you know, I don't think that most of us who, why do we take drugs to, 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 perform, to, en, you know, to enhance our performance when really what it's about, the moment that you say to take your drug is saying, I'm not enough. But what so about if someone said to you, here's something that will stop you blacking out and having these incredible was, headaches, but, but it doesn't enhance your performance. But I was blacked out because I was overtrained. And that's why I mean, when I tell that story, ultimately there's adults that are in a position of telling me to do what I should do. I'm 14, I've been told if I, because of the post 76 stuff, if I you know, don't train hard enough, if I don't do what I'm told, I'll be sent home. Three athletes are already sent home on that first weekend. You're managing a whole lot of information as a kid. You're also, even if you don't have a parent who's really pushy, you might have parents, you're trying to please them, you know that you're costing them a lot of money at home, you know that, there's a, that everybody is sacrificing for you. There's a whole lot of things that you're trying to manage. And now an adult who you respect actually comes in and says, you've got to take a drug. It's like one of the things that really amazed me when I was interviewing um, some of the swimmers last year for a series called Beyond the Black Line was the amount of injury and illness that these, these girls were going through. And I was like, but sports science is involved. You shouldn't ever be ill now. You shouldn't ever be injured. There's really smart people, but there's a coach who doesn't want to let you out of the water. Like, he's got his vested interests in how well you perform. He's got his particular beliefs about whether you go out too hard, whether you use mindfulness before you even compete. Like, there's a whole bunch of things that can happen before you say you need to take a drug. As I said, I feel really amateur and quite naive at this point, but I want to know what I can do myself with the brain and the body that I've got. I've been given a pretty spectacular bit of the universe, and I reckon I've got enough to win a gold medal, so help me do it, but don't tell me I have to take something to enhance it. That's how I feel. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the vested interests that you referred to there with a coach, but I think vested interest goes all the way up to the top, doesn't it? I Absolutely. don't know if uh, Richard and Jason want to comment on that. <laughs> Do you want to go first, mate? No, go for it. Go for well, it. Go just for so it, you can cut him off. <laughs> I'd never do that to Richard much. Um, look, I mean, the way that I see it at the moment is, is that uh, anti-doping has translated to a $500 million a year industry. There are a lot of people who make a lot of money out of supporting anti-doping. There are a lot of people who get a lot of power out of anti-doping. Um, and we've got to remember that these people do have vested interests. One of the reasons why anti-doping was introduced historically was because of the fear around the loss of the commercial value of the Olympics. Uh, this was one of the reasons it was implemented. So I think we can see that uh, we've had basically drug scandal after drug scandal for the last 50 years of the Olympics, and the trajectory for their income is like that. They have not lost money as a result of the role of drugs. Now, we've seen through this period the introduction of sports science. 
We've just heard about what tremendous impact it has. Drugs are an integral part of that sports science. The, the history that we have now of what happened in the, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s with East Germany, that's a completely different era of drugs. We're now talking about the role of drugs in modern society, where people are actually using performance-enhancing drugs through a whole range of, of situations. Uh, for those of you who are still at university, um, the person who's most vulnerable to using a cognitive-enhancing drug is the mother who works, works full-time and studies part-time. So we're seeing a change in the way that society is understanding the role of these substances. One of the things that I, I get very passionate about is that there is a difference between a drug and doping. A drug describes a substance. It, it, it's actually got no value attached to it. When we say medicine, that's okay, we're allowed to use that. When we call it doping, it's a different kind of use and we get morally outraged about it. Now, actually, most doping substances are actually therapeutic drugs that are actually, you can use them safely. And like any drug, if you misuse or abuse it, you're going to hurt yourself. So this is where I agree with Stephen again, that if you're going to introduce, you're going to legalise this stuff, you're going to liberalise it, there has to be a management system around this that enables people to use the drugs safely and try and help them navigate misuse and abuse. Now, part of what's going on here, to go back to the original question about the vested interest, where do the vested interests lie in this? Pharmaceutical industry will actually, there's, there's research by Professor Mike McNamee, which says that the pharmaceutical industry will go to a sports program and they will say, look, we've got a drug which isn't on the banned list um, because it's so new. Now, we'd like to do safety trialling on your athletes because we think it might have performance implications. Do you want to use it? And, of course, what's the manager of the sports program going to do? Yippee Why can't they report them at that point and take them to say, no, there no, shouldn't be no drugs in sport? Why can't they report them at that point and say a pharmaceutical company is trying to influence our athletes? Because they don't know what the uh, consequences of the drug are at that point. Is it performance enhancing or not? But Most people think about this in terms of if it is on the prohibited list, it is bad and evil. If it's not on the prohibited list, it must be a virtuous drug. That's the psychology of the situation. We've got a paper coming out in the International <coughs> Journal of Sport Policy and Politics. We asked uh, 40 elite athletes how they think about these things. You talked about legitimation. One of the biggest pressures that an athlete faces is, I went out there, my mum drove me down to the pool at 4.30 in the morning so I could go and follow that black line. I, I owe it to them to justify that investment. And some athletes will look at it, they overtrain. What will happen, the GP says, look, take a, take a supplement. That supplement might be contaminated with methamphetamine. That's why they pick it up. So at that level, you're introducing drugs into the mix. Drugs, from my point of view, are an integral part of sport. They don't violate the naturalness, the authenticity that you're talking about, because we are humans. We use tools. Drugs are one of the many tools we use to enhance and augment our experience. But we still aren't talking... We're, we're not talking about the mind. What you're talking about, even with the mother who's doing her cognitive stuff, she believes that she, can't, she, that she isn't enough, that what she's got... And I agree with you. There's, a, there's an issue in terms of um, prescribing drugs for... I think I read a figure the other day where antidepressant and anxiety drugs have gone up 100% in the last 10 years. That is a fundamental misunderstanding about fear and about anxiety and about 
how we get nervous before we have to do something important and how that's being seen as pathological now. And there is definitely a misunderstanding in those sorts of things. And that's mental. That's a mental fitness thing. We haven't even begun to understand that yet before we put a drug. And, and Lisa, they're, they're quite heavy drugs that you're talking about. And I think the, 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 um, the widest section of, of doping in sport isn't even drugs that, that are that heavy. It's, it's the supplement. It's the thing that we call in society the wellness industry. You know, we, we go out and this sort of alternative medicine, which, which we can use and athletes can't. It's more kind of middle of the road. And the, I think what Jason is referring to is the fact that some of these things, a lot of the things on the World Anti-Doping um, Band List, there is no science uh, absolutely to prove anything, to prove it even does anything. So let's just, to, to give perspective, one of the recent things we might have heard about was meldonium. You know, a whole lot of the Russians or, or those um, Eastern European countries, uh, WADA went back and tested a whole lot of samples and went, wow, this keeps turning up in a lot of things. Let's ban it. OK, well, caffeine turns up in a lot of things too. Mm. Let's ban that, you know, which is probably the, the Western European al alternative. Maybe talk... No, I'll come back to you, Richard. <laughs> talk about uh, how, how many... The, the number of um, positives that come back from testing is like less than 1%. So it's a very expensive industry for very little result. And of that 1%, how many are actually um, some sort of technical issue or people that weren't actually setting out to dope, but it's turned up in, in a supplement like Jason was talking about because it was contaminated? Yeah, look, I've got a, I've got a phrase that I use for athletes who get caught up in the, the anti-doping rules. They're either ignorant or they're arrogant and the vast majority of them are ignorant. They didn't know it was banned. They, they got advice it was okay. They, it was not labelled and it was in a nutritional supplement. There are so many athletes who get caught up in this system where they had no intention, no plan to be involved in anything to do with a performance-enhancing drug, but they are. And anti-doping needs to do a much better job, not just in education, but also in a discrimination around making sure that those athletes are not tarred and feathered in the way that really serious, committed, uh, deliberate dopers are. And then we have what I call the arrogant dopers. And there are athletes out there who do dope. In Beijing, in, in uh, the last Olympics, and also in London, there are only a handful of athletes that tested positive. The IOC has now retested quite a few samples using new technology. And as of this morning, there are now 170 athletes who competed in Beijing and London who tested clean at those two Olympic Games, who have tested positive for a range of quite serious performance-enhancing drugs. So there's two issues, and both need to be addressed. You, no? No, look, I, I'm sorry. Richard just, just used one of my button words. Um, clean. I, I get the technical definition of the word clean in that instance. There was an absence of things which we considered to be illegal. But the problem is that when we start referring to athletes as clean or dirty, that becomes the language of prejudice. I promised myself I wouldn't say that word. I knew it would. <laughs> I, I, so it's, it's, I slipped I, up. <laughs> I, I, do, I do, get, do get very exercised about it now because... And this is something for everybody to think about when you see something... When someone declares an athlete is dirty, think about that 12-year-old child who has tested positive to a drug. Would you go up to them and say that they were a dirty person? And I think that's something we all need to be very clear about when we talk about this, that we need to avoid vilifying the people who are involved. The language of prejudice is very easy, and we slip into the war discourse. 
They are the enemy. They are people to be excluded. No, these are people who work their butts off to provide us with fleeting entertainment. Sport is an entertainment industry. Okay, and if we're going to start talking about people as if they are good or bad people, clean or dirty, I think we've actually kind of started to miss the point of sport, which is for people to admire the amazing skills on display whenever, whether they be elite or non-elite, they are going out there to do something incredible. And we have the privilege of watching as well. So just that button word, clean, to me, let's try and keep prejudice out of sport for, the, for this, this issue. All right, we're going to come to Stephen to talk about the science, but um, I'm opening up the microphones now for your questions uh, to any of the panel members. Please come down. You can either come down to uh, my left or right. And uh, there we are. The microphones are sort of where the stairs are. Number one and number two. Make your way up there and uh, we'll take your questions shortly. Stephen, talk about the science or, or lack of science as yeah, you look, perceive one of the, it. One of the big issues that I have is that there is a tremendous lack of science in relation to these substances that appear on a banned list. And, and the issue that happened, of course, with the Russian athletes earlier in the year, which... Look, you know, Sharapova came out and just said, I did it. All right, now... Now, admittedly, uh, and look, you know, we could sit here for the next hour and debate about, you know, whether or not she did know or didn't know. My gut feeling, to be honest, she probably did know and thought she'll just slip it under the carpet for a few more months. But at the end of the day, in relation to that drug, um, you know, there was no real knowledge or understanding, unless you actually spoke to the, uh, to the original inventor of the drug, and he's, I think he's put about 13 or 14 papers out actually on the pharmacokinetics of the drug. At no stage was the pharmacokinetics of the drug taken into consideration. So in other words, we suddenly came up with this blanket ban as of the 1st of January. But it did mean that an athlete by, you know, uh, midnight or 11.59 on the 31st of December was well entitled to take the drug. And I think that lack of knowledge and appreciation of the pharmacokinetics... Sorry, pharmacokinetics, of course, means the, you know, the metabolism and the breakdown and the excretion of the drug... And before How long it stays in your system. Correct, correct. And, and the way you metabolise it and what goes out and excreted in the various forms that it does get excreted, urine, faeces, or, you know, evaporation out of the skin. And while there's obviously a very robust understanding of the pharmacodynamics of these drugs, we've got a pretty fair idea of what their effect is on the body. We seem to have a really poor understanding on the pharmacokinetics. And that was borne out in that example at the start of the year because suddenly uh, it was 178 athletes tested positive. And, you they know, basically had to reverse that. Correct. But, of course, Sharapova went on this enormous public relations campaign, which, anyone, which they all seem to do when they get caught. I've let down my fans, my sponsors, my mum, my dog, my cat, my pet caterpillar. All right, and they, you know, they're trying to appease the sponsors and make sure that you know, Nike, Adidas and these sort of guys are in place in two years' time. And by getting on the front foot, she actually ended up shooting herself in the foot. Whereas the other 177 just played dumb and got away with it. I won't get into the moral debate, you know, if they're, they're positive, they're positive, if they're not, they're not. But all I'm saying is we had a very, very poor understanding. We wouldn't if we had read the papers. But WADA had a very, very poor understanding on the pharmacokinetics of this drug, tried to put a ban in place. Might I say there is not one millimetre of evidence that it's a performance-enhancing drug. Not one millimetre of evidence. In fact, the original inventor of the drug put it very, very nicely. He felt it was a deprivation of human right. I mean, this was protecting cardiac cells from extreme stress. 
And but what's the impact of that? So if we well, legalise drugs and yeah, you say, yeah. okay, you can take meldonium because that's all fine, what is the impact of that on an athlete? Because if they're putting their heart under stress and you're taking something in order to say, my heart's not so well, much an under stress. That's an interesting answer. Back in 2000, one of the jobs, I was working at the Sydney Heart Centre and we would, I was sort of head scientific officer, basically doing all the uh, exercise stress tests on you know, patients that came with various cardiac diseases. We had an athlete that came in who was actually a favourite to win a gold medal in the 2000 Olympics. In fact, I think he was favourite to win what would have been the first gold medal decided at the 2000 Olympics. So it was a pretty big thing. We tested him on and off for six months before the Olympics were in... August. September? September. Mm. They finished September 1, so they're in August. Oh, they're in August. Okay. Sydney. No, Sydney. Sydney, September. Yeah, it was September, yeah, wasn't it? Middle, about middle of September. Yeah. Now, he pulled the pin. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's August, September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I didn't... <laughs> it wasn't March. No, that's know, right. Yeah. Now, I can remember the day that they, we did the last lot of testing, that which, which went on for about three to four months, and the cardiologist said, look, I really think there's going to be an issue if you continue to train at this elite level. And I can remember the look on this athlete's face when he sat down and it finally hit him, hit him. Now, this particular guy had been at the top of this tree. This was actually the first time the sport was at the Olympics. He'd been at the top of the tree for that sport for about four to five years. It was the first time that it was going to be an Olympic medal was going to be awarded for that sport, let alone in his home city, all this sort of stuff. And I looked at him for about the next half hour. He sat there motionless. And, you know, I've never forgot that thought. And I thought to myself, you know, why is it that some authority has the ability to deny him the chance to treat with whatever's required to allow him to transfer what all the blood, the sweat, the vomit, the excretions that he has lost for the last umpteen years training, and it's suddenly gone? I can't get my head around that. If you were to fall off your bike tomorrow, and, you know, we have major surgery on your knee, you could take whatever you like to make sure that that knee's right so you're back in the shortest amount of time. And I don't understand when we've got athletes whose whole life, their whole career is depending on full function of limbs, organs and tissue, what right do we have to say you cannot have the best opportunity that you can to repair, to rejuvenate, to maintain your income. Let's forget about winning world championships. No, but just a second. Lisa, you were nodding in agreement with Stephen. Well, it's really, it was, I was funny. I was thinking about this. Now, you know, I teach mindfulness and one of the things that we, we deal with is the fact that everything changes and that there is no guarantee that just because I am ready for this particular games means I'll be ready for the next one because I want to guarantee my income and all of that sort of stuff. We play sport. We play sport and we know that our bodies may not make it, they may get injured, they may have all sorts of things happen to us and that is part of life. I agree and with I that. Get, you know, I know what you're saying. What we're talking about here is drugs. I mean, so like if you I, fell off your bike and you injured your knee and the doctor said you can take this and you will be able to compete at the next Olympics, but you might, get, you might test positive... But well, I was actually yeah, saying that in the no, it's different. Yeah, I, know, I was I saying know. that in the view that everything was allowed. Asking, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, ultimately, I mean, not, you'd have. Well, 
It's about, it's about an acceptance of what, yeah, you go, I, I understand what you're saying about having a drug and yes, it can make things better. Every single drug can do that. We are in a world where suddenly we've got drugs and they can actually, you know, have, we can have quick fixes straight away, which is not actually helping us go, okay, things change in life. I'm not talking about I'm a quick fix, I'm talking about a correct fix. You know, what, what do you mean correct? Well, for example, for example. <laughs> Make it quick because we've got to get to oh, this. Okay, okay, one last comment. Um, if you owned, and I know nothing about cars, so I hope this is a good analogy. If you owned a Lamborghini, Maserati, whatever, do you put 91 unleaded in it? Do you take it to Kmart to service? I mean, do you keep it on the road using the bare minimum and the cheapest quality of service when it's a million dollar car? And yet you're asking these athletes who are now performing like Maseratis, Lamborghinis and whatever to repair, to rejuvenate and to maintain a performance based on going to your local service station, putting in the cheapest petrol, the cheapest oil and the cheapest of parts to replace it. OK, we know That's the point analogy. you're trying to make. Let's, let's go to microphone number two first. Question, please just say your name and who your question is for. Uh, my name is Jesse. And uh, my question is probably for the panel. We haven't talked about the, the consequences of taking the drug. So some of the, I guess, maybe society's reluctance to legalise is that if we look at the athletes in the 70s who took drugs, there are terrible things happened to them and maybe they were guinea pigs. So my question is, um, if uh, drugs were legalised, what would we see from our athletic performance and can we guarantee that long term there's no detrimental effect to those people? Good question. I know Jason's thought about this a lot. Yeah. Um, my analysis of it is that not much would change because people are already taking an awful lot of drugs. Um, you look at Lance Armstrong, I'd say he's not looking too unwell to me. Um, you know, any, anyone from that era. So if we did legalise the drugs, what would happen to performance? Well, the research that I've seen says that doping actually has a very marginal impact. For example, uh, the analysis of the blood samples by Mike Ashenden and Rob Parasoto uh, in the athletics world, uh, one in six medalists doped, five in six didn't. If I'm a coach, I'm not telling anyone to dope because you've got a much better chance of winning. Now that's the people who invented the biological passport. Okay, I know that the Saugi, uh, they, they did a whole bunch of work. So in answer to your question, what would change if we legalised legalized the drugs? Not an awful lot. So why take I think them? I'm more interested in the second part. <laughs> what can we guarantee long term? Do we know that the science is in that says that these athletes won't have repercussions down the track? Okay. The, the answer to that is that every drug that you see that's therapeutically available has been through rigorous clinical testing. We know what it takes to have a drug to be used safely. You can use anabolic steroids safely. A lot of people mm. do. Okay. Mm. Anabolic steroids are not evil. They are a drug which we use to treat you know, horrible diseases like asthma. They work. They work really well. They are really great for soft tissue injuries. Microdosing steroids, microdosing soldiers with steroids can help them overcome soft tissue injuries when they're humping around Afghanistan and Iraq. This is a good thing. Okay? We know how to use these drugs. There's a paper, um, 2010, from the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which reviewed the use of steroids, anabolic steroids in sport. And if it is supervised by a medical practitioner, there are no negative effects. Okay, you can use them quite safely. Stephen? Oh, yeah, look, I was just going to quickly add, because I know we've got other questions, but the problem is, is that we've tried to vilify these drugs. And most of the vilification have come from people who truly do not understand the drugs. Um, and I think that's a very, very important point to consider. Microphone one. Oh, hi, my name is James. Um, you contradicted yourself there by saying that there is no real benefit to taking the drugs, yet 
you're also saying there is a benefit earlier in the piece. So that was his contradiction, not mine. irrespective <laughs> of that, um, I have another question more on therapeutic use exemption. So I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts, but this applies in other sports as well. And for a while, um, there was something called testosterone replacement therapy, which was legal in that sport. A lot of people who were deficient in testosterone took that treatment and suddenly started producing exceptional results. They've now subsequently banned that therapy and those people that were experiencing those beneficial results are not performing at that level anymore. Where do you draw the line around uh, therapeutic use exemption? We don't let para-athletes para or para-Olympians you know, strap on us a mechanical leg that can kick really fast because they're missing a leg. So with the example of the Chinese swimmer, he's got a heart problem, but he's able to take something that potentially makes his heart stronger than someone who doesn't have a problem. So where do you draw the line around therapeutic well, use exemptions? That last statement you said is not actually necessarily true. Um, look, there is again no... Look, and people say, well, OK, why am I taking the option that, you know, of allowing sport, sorry, drugs to be legalised when there's not a lot of evidence to, in terms of performance? And I've never said that I would like to see doping for performance. I'm talking about recovery. I'm talking the ability to treat an injury. I'm talking about the ability to get hormonal and immune systems back in synchronicity that allows maximum optimal, optimal performance. So I think we've got to draw a little bit of a, or demarcate a line there between maintaining performance or optimal performance and then trying to look for supra-physiological performance. And so just on that, with the Chinese swimmer, you say it could make his heart stronger than everybody else in the field. Actually, because he has a weakness, it's trying to get him to a normal, a normal range as... Everyone else but I'm the sure there's a reason why it's banned in competition. Oh, look, well, it's honest, not now. It's been taken off the list. It's, been it's not taken banned off. at all. Yeah, okay. so well, well, let's focus on the example of the Paralympian who's an amputee, doesn't have a leg. Should they be allowed to have a mechanical leg attached because that allows them to compete <coughs> with someone who has two legs? And, and look, that's why I preface what I said very earlier. Although I take the S option, or I'm trying to defend the S option today, it's not without a lot of rigorous discussion and the implementation of a very strict, robust system in terms of what we allow and how we manage it. I'm not about a drugathon. I'm certainly not about an open-door policy, get your syringe and go for your life. All right? I want to make that point clear. If I allowed it, the testing, the management, the analysis of, of samples, the pharmacokinetic analysis of substances would be far more robust than anything that's in place today when we have the no option. In fact, I think it's quite embarrassing what we have in place today. If you really want to get to the nuts and guts of what the World Anti-Doping Authority and its, all its subsidiaries really know and understand about drugs is a completely flawed system, and it's based on a group of people who really know sweat FA about drugs and what it does from a biochemical, biochemical perspective in sport. In fact, if you ask WADA quite often about their science, I don't know if it's just a great reluctance to provide it, but they, can't. they don't seem to have it on, on a lot of Trust the things Trust me, I've tried suggesting. to subpoena. <laughs> but is it microphone number two? Thank you. Number two. Hi, my name's uh, Tom, and I guess my question is uh, aimed at the whole panel. Um, I'd just like to get your thoughts around the financial implications of legalising drugs in sport. Um, so do you believe it will increase the inequities between programs that have the financial um, resources to properly manage and apply these drugs to those that don't? I mean, does it get to a point where we eliminate programs that don't have money because well, they simply just can't apply the drugs? It certainly didn't worry certain Jamaican sprinters and certain Kenyan middle distance runners. And I would suggest those programs are nowhere near as vigorous in their financial situations as some of the other countries. So I, I sort of understand where you're coming from, but I think we've seen enough positive tests 
from enough athletes in countries where there's basically no financial uh, status in their programs at all. But, you know, obviously people who might disagree with me, I, I don't quite agree with that. Richard? Yeah, look, I don't think our health system could even support it. I mean, our health system is chronically underfunded as, as it is. Imagine the situation where there's more than one million plus athletes at all levels of Australian sport who can now go to their local doctor to get a Medicare treatment for uh, with a performance-enhancing drug. It, it just can't happen. And, and I agree with Stephen and the rest of the panel that it can't be open slather, but there has to be a review of this entire anti-doping system because it's letting us down, it's letting athletes down, and there's great room to improve it and give us more confidence in the system. In fact, there was a meeting this week in Denmark, I think, of the national anti-doping uh, organisations who mm. have said there needs to be a complete review. Um, the IOC has said the same thing. WADA's even admitted as much. Uh, but I think their idea of a complete review is to boost the funding from $30 million a year to $300 million a year and keep approaching it just uh, with more force And I think we way. have more social problems in this world to address whether than some silly athlete is injecting something or taking a tablet. You know, when I look at some of the problems socially around this world, I just think we've got a far better thing to be spending money on than athletes taking or injecting drugs. To follow yeah. up on that point, um, one of the things that I've, I've said in the, in the media recently is that um, I'm sure that Kenya has better things to do with its money than implement anti-doping. <laughs> they should be engaging in nation-building activities like mm. education and health. Anti-doping is probably something which is not that important to them. Yeah, and as uh, Jason pointed out, anti-doping globally at the moment is a half a billion dollar annual industry. We need to get our money back. It's not working to the level that it needs to be. And before we inject, pardon the pun, more money into the system, we need to make sure we're getting the best value from that, that massive half a billion dollar global spend, which is just not catching those seriously involved in doping and catching too many athletes who are inadvertently falling afoul of the system. Lisa, did you want to add anything to that? Oh, I mean, it all makes sense. Oh, when I wrote the book about um, the boycott of 1980 and it was about the government involvement politics, that external politics in sport, I used to say there's a big difference between politics in sport and the politics of sport. And this now, is what this I, is I know about. we have to be really conscious of the time. Is there another question there? Microphone number two? Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, g'day all. Uh, question for you, Stephen. Uh, a few weeks ago, when there were shots fired at your home in Victoria, you said it was to silence you from naming a prominent NRL star with whom you'd injected a banned substance just before a big game. Can you name that NRL star now? <laughs> Can you give us your name, please? Oh, sorry. G'day, my name's Chris. Do you have a loaded gun? <laughs> Dodge scarf. But... Not today. Not today. All right. Thanks very much for that. Um, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Thank you all for coming and I hope you leave here um, just a little bit more uh, informed, maybe more questions and I think questions are really important in this domain. Um, rather than have policy kind of dictated with, with little understanding and lack of transparency, it's really good to have as many people as involved as possible and I don't think any of us are saying we have the answer. Um, but I think all of us, for different reasons, would like to contribute to whatever the answer might be in the future, because clearly 
there is a problem, um, and the way it's prosecuted at the moment um, just opens up a whole lot more problems. I've spoken to a lot of medical staff around the world who say, you know, if you had some sort of a system in place, some sort of clinical trial where you invested this much money and you got less than 1% return, it'd be scrapped. So, uh, you know, sport is persisting with this for whatever reason. But appreciate your interest. Can you please thank our panellists, Lisa Forrest, Stephen Dank, Jason Mazanov and Richard Ings. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.